Now, I want to let you know right off the bat here that there is no other place than I would rather be right now than here at this church in this service. It's my privilege to be able to bring you the word this morning, and I don't take that lightly. I count it a privilege and an honor and a blessing and a great responsibility. It's one of my favorite songs, Take My Life and Let It Be, that song of consecration, of offering yourself every area, every, every little crack and crevice of yourself to God. The reason I love that song so much is it's, it's one thing to sing the chorus, which is up here on the wall. Here I am, all of me, take my life. It's one thing to sing that, but to go through every verse that, that lists all those different aspects of your life and to say, and now this part, here you go. And God, this part, here you go. And God, this part, here you go. It's, it's a reminder that I need every day. Because what are we? We are a living sacrifice. God says, Paul says, to offer ourselves to, to God as living, living sacrifices. And that means that rebellion, that means that sin, that means selfishness creeps in every day. That makes you want to take parts of your life back. That you don't like what, how God is leading you or directing you or saying to you. And with that in mind, what I share this morning, I pray that you receive it in the right attitude and the right heart, because brace yourselves, we're going to talk about money. We don't like talking about money. We don't like being told what to do with our money. We don't like the government telling us what we're going to do with our money. Uh, I never liked my parents telling me what I was going to do with my allowance. If I wanted to spend all three dollars that I got every week on candy, then so be it. That was my choice. But they told me that a dollar fifty went into savings and that thirty cents of it went into the offering and I probably should be saving the rest for something that I really wanted. I didn't like being told that. Stewardship. That's what we're talking about this morning. It's really an all-encompassing subject that covers every aspect of our life. That's why we sang that song. Song. It talks about our time, our abilities, and perhaps uh, what are the most obvious area, which is our material resources. At times, though, I admit I've been generally reluctant to preach about this subject, being almost apologetic when I would speak about money, considering it would be uh, somewhat self-serving if a pastor is telling the congregation that they need to, what they need to do with their money, that they need to be tithing more. Um, it's like a story I heard once about three children who were bragging about how much their parents made. One kid said, well, my dad makes a whole lot. He's a doctor, so he makes $250,000 a year. And the next boy says, well, my dad is a lawyer. He makes $500,000 a year. And the third boy goes, well, my dad's a preacher, and it takes six people every week to carry everything that he makes. <laughs> I'll give it a second for the rest of you to catch on to that. <clears throat> well, after a lifetime in the church and seven years of full-time ministry, I've come to the deep conviction that stewardship is one of the very core issues of Christian discipleship. What Pastor Mike's been talking about since the beginning of this new year of, of this concept and, and idea of thriving. If we want to, as Christians and as a church, thrive, 
We need to understand this principle of stewardship. And is the world going to teach us it? Is the world going to teach us this? No. No. So we need to open up God's word and we need to see what God says about it. Perhaps that's the reason why Jesus had more to say about money and material possessions than he did about heaven, hell, and a host of other subjects combined. He spoke about money more than anything. But as I mentioned before, the subject of money is a very personal thing, isn't it? Most people today, Christians included, don't want to be accountable to anyone, even including their spouses, for how they choose to handle their money. Crown Ministries, a Bible study on financial stewardship, shares the following story and lesson. When the Crusades were being fought during the 12th century, the Crusaders purchased the services of mercenaries to fight in their behalf. Because it was a religious war, the crusaders insisted that the mercenaries be baptized before fighting. As they were being baptized, the mercenaries would take their swords and they'd hold them up out of the water to symbolize that Jesus Christ was not in control of their swords. They had the freedom to use their swords in any way they wished. Today, many people handle their money in a similar fashion. Though they may not be as blatant as the mercenaries were, still, symbolically, many Christians hold their wallet up and say, God, take all of me below the wrist. All of me below the wrist. God, you may be Lord of my entire life, except in the area of money. Here I'm perfectly capable of handling myself. Now today, I want us to see from Scripture that God has made each of us responsible for everything that flows through our hands. Daniel Webster, that great American statesman in the early years of the nation, was once being honored for his many contributions to society. The audience was filled with most of the founding fathers in our country. And Webster was asked about the most important thought that he ever had. To which when he asked that, he became very emotional and he had to leave the room. When he returned, this was his reply. The most important thought I ever had was that of my individual responsibility to God. Webster got it. He understood the essence of what it means to be a steward to the Lord. And so we have the passage up there, but if you want to turn in your Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And it goes as follows. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another, to, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe that today's text teaches us four biblical principles for managing the Lord's resources, which he has put into our hands. The first principle that we're going to talk about is God owns it all. In the parable, the master called his servants together and gave each of them some money to manage for him while he went away. The five talent, two talent, one talent. In the passage we read, it was five bags of gold, two bags of gold. They weren't special abilities. That's why I did that version so that we didn't think talents was something else. In this, it was talking about money, okay? But it, these, were th- these were sums of money that belonged to the master, not the servants. So when the master came and gave the five bags of gold, the two bags of gold, and the one bag of gold, that was the master's money. But he was leaving on business for a long while, and so he entrusted them with some of his money. The master placed it in their hands and trusted them to manage it wisely. Just a minute. I did that, by the way. <clears throat> I'm trying to get used to this. I'm actually controlling it with uh, something up here. So, um, Being a steward is something like being a banker. If you need a, a, a way to process this in your head, understand you don't own the money that you have. You don't own the possessions that you have. Uh, you don't own anything. God owns it all. That's the first principle that we're looking at. So view yourself as a banker. The money a banker uses to conduct business is not his own. He simply does not bank business under the premise that he's going to manage the money of others. Now we would understandably become quite angry if our banker decided to use our money as if it was his own. We would call that embezzlement. Consequently, every time we we write a check, it would be wise to remember that we are all just bankers who happen to manage the Lord's account. Don't miss that point. The money in your possession, the money in your bank account is not yours. It's God's. And so everything that you use your money on, above the 10% that God asks us to tithe, it's not enough to just give your 10%. It's that the other 90% needs to be under his lordship and understand that that's his as well. 
John Wesley once said, When the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as an owner, but as a steward. As such, he entrusted you for a season with goods of various kinds. But the sole property of these still rests with him, nor can ever be alienated from him. So as the owner of everything, God has the right to do whatever he wants with it. As it was, he gave five bags of gold to one person, two bags of gold to another, and one to, you know, that last servant. And that always, I always struggled with that. Did anyone else struggle with that concept that uh, he didn't give the same amount to everybody? I remember the first time I heard this parable, I was probably Brogan's age. I was in first grade in children's church, and our Bible teacher shared this story, and, and I remember going, why did he just get one? And then when I heard that he buried it in the ground, I, my first thought was, that sounds kind of smart. Because if you only have one bag of gold, it might, it's a little more risky to try to double it. You know? So it might have been the wise thing to bury it when I heard that that was being lazy and wicked and that was being taken away from him. It was hard for me to understand my first grade self. I, I've come to grips with it now. Uh, and that's the point I want to make here is that it's not up to us to determine or to say what's fair with the person who, whose money it is. God has all the resources. And so it's up to him to determine where those resources go. So it's not up to us to say, well, if I had as much resources as this person, I could do a lot more. But since I've only been given this much, sorry, God. Job understood that principle when he lost his family and worldly possessions. What did he say? He said, the Lord gives... And the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, the owner is the one who has all the rights. The steward is the one who has all the responsibility. What that means is that you and I have absolutely no right as stewards to complain that the owner has not given us as much as he has given to someone else. Now, because God is the owner... And my job is to be the best manager possible. Every spending decision that I make in my life becomes a spiritual decision. A spiritual decision. In other words, it's not just that we uh, give what we do, it's what we do with the rest that makes us the steward. Financial advisor Ron Blue with Crown Ministries uh, once said that you can't fake stewardship. Your checkbook reveals everything that we need to know about stewardship. A life story could be written from your checkbook or your bank account if you don't use checks. Your credit card statement, as it is. It reflects your goals, your priorities, your convictions, your relationships, and even the use of your time. A person who has been a Christian for even a short while can learn how to fake prayer, to fake it at a Bible study, evangelism, going to church, and so on, but they can't fake what their checkbook reveals. Consider this. When a, uh, when a business suspects fraud, they never put a lot of credence in what their employees say with their mouths. They always funny, follow, sorry, they always follow the money trail. God likewise does not follow the verbal trail for us when we sing here am I all of me take my life it's all for thee when we sing that 
that's not enough because God knows what's in our heart. He knows what, we're, what we do with our time. He knows how we're using his resources. He follows the money. It says in Scripture, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Our problem is that many of us do not recognize that God is really the owner of everything in our lives. But when we wake up to that fact that he owns it all, the real question then becomes, what am I doing with it? Principle number two. God uses possessions to prepare us for his coming kingdom. In the parable we read, the servants are tested on their faithfulness to their master by what they do with his possessions. The ones who had proven themselves to be faithful with a few things were told they would be given responsibility over many things and that they would enter into his happiness. In light of this story, I believe there are three ways that possessions prepare us for the coming kingdom. First, money and possessions are a very effective tool that God uses in our lives. There's probably nothing else that is more effective in getting our attention than our pocketbook. In fact, some of the greatest lessons in life are often learned through this means. In my life, one of the first times I learned it was when I was raising funds for a mission trip to Australia when I was in college. It cost a considerable amount, and we had all these goals and uh, timelines for when percentages of the amount needed to be coming in, or else we couldn't go. Uh, by the first date, we needed to have 20% in, which, thankfully, when I sent out my support letters and everything, that much came in. And I thought, you know what, I'm good to go. The, the support's going to come in. I've sent it out to a lot of good family and friends and, and uh, people that support me that want to see me go on this trip, so I know that money is going to come in. And didn't really pay attention or give it a second thought after that. And then about a week before the final deadline, um, the team leader called me and let me know that I'm sitting at 20%. I'm still sitting at 20% of my funds. And all of a sudden I got faced with the big reality of, you know what? I'm probably not going on this trip. I thought I did everything that I needed to do, but clearly I didn't. I called my parents to whine and complain and say it's not fair. You know, maybe they'll feel bad for me and give me some money that I'd be able to go. And my dad's response was eye-opening. All he said was, have you prayed about it? Have you given any time in prayer over the raising of these funds? Or did you just assume it was going to come in? Of course, I just assumed it was going to come in. It's not until we come into a financial crisis or a time where we are required to call upon God that we are aware that it doesn't come from us or our ability or our uh, effort, but it truly does come from him. Now, I'm happy to report that uh, I did go on that mission trip. I I spent a lot of time praying that week, um, better late than never, right? And uh, by the time the the deadline came in, I had about 130% of the funds raised and could give glory and praise to God and also was able to help other people that didn't get their full funds in so that they were able to go as well. Uh, But that was, God revealed to me in that moment that it it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. And Brianne's going to share now about a moment in her life, because of me, that she experienced that kind of crisis of faith. Most of my testimony comes to, I grew in my faith 
when I was challenged and there was hardships after I met him. (laughs) So it has nothing to do with him, but the transition that comes after you get married. I knew the gravy train of living off mom and dad's dime was going to end someday. It was sad, but it happened, and I was okay with it. But I didn't understand how hard it was going to be. We moved to Kentucky after getting married, had him registered for classes, paid for his classes. I just graduated with my master's in marriage and family therapy. I was going to work, put him through school, pay the bills. We were good to go. Do you know that when you graduate with an undergraduate or a master's degree, it doesn't mean you're going to get a job? (laughs) Surprise! I went months without being able to find a job. I made phone calls. I went in and visited people, which they always said, go online and and apply. I made phone calls. I talked to people. I went all over the place looking for a job. And I remember one day sitting down looking at our spreadsheet, balancing our checkbook, and I called my dad, who's my financial planner. He's cheap and he's good for me. Um, And I was bawling. And I said, Dad, my checkbook, we went under $100. I have to touch the thing you told us never to touch in case of emergency savings. I was crushed. And I went to Matt and told him, and he grew up in a pastor's home. He's a pastor's kid, and he just said, Brianne, keep doing what you're doing. God will take care of us. To which I turned to him and yelled, I don't have faith like that. And I stormed out and went on a walk. Because to me, I, I have, I've done everything with everything God's given me. I'm a hard worker. I went and got the education. I'm working hard to find a job, and Walmart won't even interview me. Lowe's wouldn't interview me. No one would talk to me. And I grew up in a family where my dad's a successful businessman. You use what God gives you. You don't sit and be lazy, because God's not just going to drop that bag of gold in front of you. You get up and work. You make the phone calls. You take, go get the education. I've done it all, God. Why aren't you helping me out? And then just a couple weeks after I hit that breaking point, I got to use my education. I got to use my master's degree at Starbucks. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I have never been so thankful for health care and a minimum wage job in my life. I was able to sit back and go, understand what Matt's saying. It wasn't what I wanted, but God, you took care of me. Thank you so much. I know no one wants to hire me because they know I'm going to find something in my field. I worked hard at that job. I loved it, and I kept on talking to other people. And just five, six months after starting working there as a barista, I got my job, and I was grateful for it. I was thankful for it because I knew no matter what the circumstance, no matter the amount, no matter what talent I think God should be using, it's all his. So there are two different responses that we can um, make during a financial change in our lives. The one would sound something like this might sound familiar uh, to you. You might have heard someone say this or might have said it yourself. Uh, the, uh, God, why are you doing this to me? When a challenge comes up and, and you thought it was going to go a certain way or, or finances get tight, God, why are you doing this to me? The other, however, would sound more like this. Might be a more appropriate response. God, what do you want me to learn through this? Brianne and I learned a lot through that time. Because even though I had experienced times in my life where I had gone without or we had shopped everything generic brand uh, in my life, you know, I didn't have real Cheerios until I was in high school. 
Um, but that was my life. Still, we had, this time we were the adults, and we were the ones responsible, and there was more pressure, and, and that's where the rubber met the road. And we learned a lot. So that's the first uh, thing that we looked up there. Money and possessions are an effective tool that God can use. Secondly, money and possessions are also a, an effective test that God uses. In the parable, the two faithful stewards passed the test and are subsequently given more. The unfaithful one failed the test and therefore had his one talent or bag of money taken away. Maybe you heard the story, probably not, um, but maybe you heard the story about a rich man who died and went to heaven. I don't know if it's nonfiction. It's probably a fiction story, um, but it's a good story nonetheless. A man died and went to heaven. And he was being brought through heaven and all the different neighborhoods. And he's seeing all these mansions. And he walks up and recognizes a name on the mailbox. It's the, uh, this is the mansion of his uh, housekeeper. And it's beautiful, beautiful mansion. And he goes down to another road and sees uh, a mansion of one of his employees that, that is just even be- more beautiful than the housekeeper's. And he's getting excited because he hasn't seen his house yet. And so he's thinking, if that's the mansion they have, you know, then his has to be pretty nice. So anticipation, his anticipation grew for the home uh, that was awaiting him. But then he was shown this 8 by 10 shack, shanty, and was told that this would be his uh, resting place here in heaven. After inquiring why, the angel simply told him, we did the best with what you sent us. Again, I don't know if it's a true story or not. Um, but the story rings true nonetheless. He failed the test. That the amount that we put in does come back to us. The third thing that we can see about money and possessions are that they are also an effective testimony. A distinctive mark of a Christian is not how much or how little they have, but what their attitude toward it happens to be. Too many Christians live for the world that is temporary instead of the world that's eternal. Ralph Waldo Beeson was a multimillionaire who never lost sight of his Christian stewardship, though. He lived a frugal lifestyle in a modest home with no air conditioning. I can't believe it. He had no desire to spend the money on himself, but wanted to give all that he could to the Lord's work. Mr. Beeson gave a large sum of money to help found a divinity school on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. His only stipulation for the gift was that he remain anonymous. Mr. Beeson said, It's the Lord's money. He gave me the gift of making it. I'm not smart enough to make that much money on my own. It's his money, and I'm going to give it back to him. Understand that the resources that you have, the money that you have, can be a testimony, both positive and negative. Principle number three, the amount, the amount is not important. In Jesus' parable, the reward was the same for both the five-talent steward and the two-talent one. Both of them showed their faithfulness by increasing what they had been entrusted with. And both were entrusted with more, and ultimately they shared in their master's happiness. You see, the amount that you have is not what's important to God. But what you do with what you have been entrusted with is very important. Like the saying goes, it's not what you do with a million if millions should ever be your lot. 
but what you're doing at present with the dollar and the quarter that you've got. Don't sit and think that, well, if you had more, if you won that Powerball jackpot that was a couple weeks ago and had $1.5 billion at your disposal, all the good that you'd do. God's not asking what you would do with that much. He's asking, what are you doing with what you have right now? I know you've heard this story before because I remember Pastor Mike using this example. 57 pennies that were found under a little girl's pillow when she died left their mark on the city of Philadelphia. The girl wanted to enter a little uh, Sunday school in Philadelphia years ago and was told that there was not enough room. She began saving her pennies to help the Sunday school have more room. Two years later, she became ill and died, and they found a small pocketbook under her pillow with 57 pennies and a piece of paper that had the following note written very neatly, to help build the little temple bigger so more children can go to Sunday school. The pastor told the story to his congregation, and the newspaper took the story across the country. Soon the pennies grew, and the outcome can be seen in Philadelphia today. There is a church which seats 3,300 persons, a temple university, which accommodates thousands of students, a temple hospital, and a large temple Sunday school. And it all began with a beautiful, dedicated spirit and 57 pennies. The amount is not important. One more example with this. Dr. Hugh McKean of Chiang Mai, Thailand, tells of a church of 400 members where every single member tithes. They receive a weekly wage of 40 stangs, which is less than 20 cents, and their rice. Of this meager existence, each gives a tenth every week. Because of this, they have done more for Christ in Thailand than any other church. They pay their own preacher and have sent two missionary families to spread the gospel in a community cut off from the outside world. They are intensely interested in all forms of Christian work, especially work for unfortunates of every kind. And their gifts for this kind of work are large. They have not only accepted Christ, but having found him good, they are making him known to others. By the way, this church of all tithers is also a church of all lepers. This church is a leper colony. The amount is not important. I'll give you a second that. Forgot to go forward there. Principle number four, the last principle. Stewardship requires action. In the parable, each of the servants knew they had to do something. Two of them took positive action that resulted in uh, the enlargement of their trust, and the third knew his responsibility as well, but instead he chose inaction. He did nothing. His inactivity cost him dearly. Many of us as well know what we're supposed to do, but like the servant, we also either disobey or delay. Tony Campolo, sociology professor at Eastern College and a popular speaker, told of his experience one year at a women's conference where he was making a major address. At the point in the program when the women were being challenged with a several thousand dollar goal for their mission projects, the chairperson for the day turned to Dr. Campolo and asked him if he would pray for God's blessing upon the women as they considered what they might do to achieve the goal. To her utter surprise, Dr. Campolo came to the podium and graciously declined her invitation. This is what he said. 
you already have the resources necessary to complete this mission project right here within your room. It would be inappropriate to ask for God's blessing when God has already blessed you with abundance and the means to achieve the goal. The necessary gifts are in your hands right now. As soon as we take the offering and underwrite this mission project, then we will be able to thank God for freeing us to be the generous, responsible, and accountable stewards that we are called to be as Christian disciples. When the offering was taken, the mission challenge was oversubscribed, and Dr. Campolo led a joyous prayer of thanksgiving for God's abundant blessings and for the faithful stewardship of God's people. And I think that attitude that Dr. Campolo expressed is, <coughs> excuse me, is missed a lot of times when we talk about stewardship, when we talk about giving, because all too often I think we do pray the way that the, the leader there wanted Dr. Campolo to pray a prayer of blessing upon the individuals that they would feel led to give um, when all we need is, is for God to open our eyes to see that he's already blessed us and that we need to accept that responsibility in our lives. As the wicked servant found out, no action or delayed action can have terrible consequences. The master told him that he should have at least put it on deposit with the bankers and receive some interest. Do you realize that if you invested $1,000 in an average mutual fund and left it there for 40 years, it would be worth $256,000? What would it be worth if you didn't do anything for the first 20 years and then invested the 1000 It would only be worth... $16,000. That's why we talk about the sin of delay. Failure to act in that case, in this financial case here, can cost upwards of a quarter of a million dollars if you wait, if you wait too long. What about our investments in eternal things? What kind of interest, eternal interest, is lost by our delay or by no action? So to review the four principles that we looked at this morning that hopefully you take with you as we leave here is that God owns it all. Everything that we have, God owns. God uses our possessions to prepare us for his coming kingdom. Remember that the amount is not important and that being a faithful steward requires action. It requires action. So what action is God calling you to take today? Some, some of you here have never tithed on what God has entrusted you with. Maybe today he's telling you that it's time to start obeying him and trusting him with your finances. Maybe God is telling some of you that you've been treating the 90% as if it was your own and you haven't been honoring him by the way that you manage it. Maybe God has spoken to someone here who thought, like the one talent man, that you didn't have enough to do anything with. But today, you hear him say, it's not how much you have, but what you're doing with whatever I've given you. The point is this. If it all belongs to God, if God owns it all, then what am I doing with it? Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm humbled 
by the truth from your scriptures. And I'm ashamed at how often I've lived selfishly with my checkbook. Sure, I can have examples and and stories to tell of, of times where I was faithful, but I have just as many stories where I treated your money like it was mine to do with as I please, where I didn't consider you or your kingdom and how I used them, how I mismanaged your money. God, I pray that you would forgive me for sins in the past and that you would empower me to live a life of obedience to you, to be your faithful servant that not only doesn't mismanage your money, but is a, is a conduit for your grace and, and your mercy and your justice to flow through to this world, that your love can flow through me, that you would use the finances that I have, that we in this congregation have, that we not hold so tightly to our pocketbooks, that we don't hold it above the water as we're being baptized and say, you can have all of us but this. God, take our life, take everything that is in us, and use it for your glory. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen.